name of this session is Connecting to Collections State by State. We fondly at the IMLS call Connecting to Collections C to C, not SEA, but anyway, it is in that sense, C to C. And um, as we move along, I, I think you'll see why we have this title. But I thought we would start by looking at some short videos that we did for the participants at IMLS. I'd like everybody to make a pretty good video. collections are for everyone. They are discovered billions of times a year in libraries and museums across the country. They enlighten and inspire all of us, from the school child to the scholar. They connect us to ideas from the past and dreams of the future. They are pages from our nation's diary. From priceless documents and art objects to historical artifacts. From scrapbooks compiled over generations to the digital collections of more modern times. They tell our stories. They are a legacy held in trust from the past and a gift to the future. But unlike the values they represent, these treasures are not themselves indestructible. Time, flood, and fire can destroy them. And once lost, they can never be recovered. We must act to safeguard the collections that reflect our national identity. To protect our priceless cultural heritage, our collective memory. These treasures Americans have always seized the moment to create, to invent, to collect, to document our actions so that future generations can learn from them. Today, much of what we know about science, history, and art, held in trust in our libraries and museums, historical societies and archives is at risk. To protect these treasures, the Institute of Museum and Library Services has created a major initiative connecting to collections, a call to action. And communities throughout the nation taking up the challenge to preserve America's collections. You too can act to ensure that the stories only these collections can tell are heard for generations to come. Please help us in honoring these valuable collections. We need your ideas, your talents, your time, and most of all, your support. Together, 
America's heritage and culture for those who will follow us. What can you do? You can learn more by visiting our website at www.imls.gov. And you can ask your local museum and library how you can help today. Please join us in this call to action on behalf of America's collections. The, the film tells you why we put together this initiative and tells you a little bit about what communities might do, what museums might do to change these figures that you see. 80% of institutions have no emergency plan for their collections and so forth. That all comes from the Heritage Health Index report, which if you haven't seen, you should. Because by the time, I hope that we will, not too long from now, be doing another Heritage Health Index survey. And we hope that through Connections Collections, we'll have a little better conservation IQ, so to speak. My name is Nancy Rogers, and I'm coordinating this initiative for Dr. Ann Radice, the director of IMLS. And it has been a great privilege. And if you have any questions about the initiative, please, you have this on your handout, um, please get in touch with me. Whoops, now I need to go back. This is the website for our initiative. The URL is at the top, because if you just go straight to collections, you find this is a great resource for you, and I hope that you will use it. The purposes of this session are to report on what we've learned so far to let you know what resources are still available to you, to tell you what we're going to do next, and to hear from you what you think your needs are in your institutions now regarding collections care and what IMLS might do. So I hope we have time to, for some discussion at the end. Our speakers today are Scott Carley, who is the curator of museum services for the Alaska State Museum, and he is leading the Alaska Statewide Planning process for connecting to collections. Steve Cox, far left, is the executive vice president of the Indiana Historical Society, and he's going to give you insights into the statewide planning process in this state. And his report is in the back as one of the handouts. Bob Beatty is the vice president for programs, director of programs, sorry, at ASLH. Is that right? Other one was right. Vice President, he got a promotion because of his work with me um, at NEH, is the project director for the IMLS Connecting to Collections Bookshelf Project. And we have evaluation reports from the first two rounds of recipients, and he's going to tell us what we're learning. So first, I'd like just to set the stage of where we are with Connecting to Collections. This is the central initiative of the director of IMLS for her four years in office. It was launched in 2007, so we've had two very quick, seems very brief years because so much has happened, and I want to let you know what, what has gone on. The focus of the initiative in general 
is helping smaller institutions provide the optimal care for their collections. Christine Henry is with us. Christine, would you raise your hand? Christine is the program officer for the statewide planning projects. Of you in, in this room, um, how many of you have, are from states that are already doing statewide planning? Okay, so only one of you is not from a state doing statewide planning. Uh, the state's not funded or listed here. The next deadline is December 15th. And that will be the last deadline for the statewide planning grants. Implementation grants will also be accepted on December 15th. These, of course, are to put into practice, to put into a specific product kind of uh, form the results of the planning. They are for grants of up to $250,000. We don't know how many we'll be giving. Um, we don't know how many rounds there will be but we're hoping for a nice, robust um, first round for implementation. We also have another grant program, the Bank of America IMLS American Heritage Preservation Grant Program, and Christine is also the program officer for that. So if you have questions about either of these, please see Christine. I think this is a great example of ways that Connected Collections has forward, forged public-private partnership We've received money from Bank of America, matched by IMLS, for $150,000 of funding a year for, the, for three years. We made 53 awards in 2008. And I think it's, it's we've seen just, even though they're small grants, only up to $3,000 each, they are for in three areas of funding, for treatment of a, an object or a group of objects, for storage improvements, and for environmental improvements. They are not for, the, for digitization projects. But in those other areas, we've seen just really wonderful small projects taking place. For example, in Indiana, at, in the city of Crawfordsville, the General Lew Wallace Museum, they have a project to rehouse their textile and oversized objects collection. 
And that includes the Civil War uniform worn by General Lew Wallace in 1861. I don't know whether that's because it's in the textile collection or the oversized objects collection, but it's one of those. The Sergeant Murray Gilman Huff Historical Society in Gloucester, Massachusetts, is using its grant to clean and treat a bedspread from 1812, which will be the centerpiece of the inter interpretation of a bedchamber that was occupied by a woman's rights advocate, a women's rights advocate at the end of the 18th century. So I didn't really know that women rights, women's rights advocates were out there in 17-something, but she was one. So you have about three weeks to apply for this, September 15th, so I hope you will. The national convenings we've held, this is the last one. It was held at the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo. We held a National Conser Conservation Summit in Washington, D.C., where every state was represented. In Atlanta, we talked about the care of objects that have a kind of ethnic background. It was called Preserving America's Diverse Heritage. In Denver, collaboration in the digital age, so we both focused on digitization as a preservation tool and preservation of digital, digitized objects. In San Diego, we focused on living collections. Well, it was called, it had the longest title, It's Alive, Petals to Primates, Preservation Challenges of Living Collections. And we did have a few people there from historic sites that also have animals or plants that they need to conserve. And in Buffalo, which was the largest of the four, it was called Stewardship of America's Legacy, Answering the Call to Action. Webcasts of each of these forums are available on the website, and I really urge you to go watch them. I do, and I was there for all of them. There are some wonderful highlights, such as Lonnie Bunch's speech, keynote address in Atlanta, which is inspirational and can make you cry. Um, in Buffalo, we had one of the panels was called Help. No one is interested in what I do, keeping collections care central. That featured Julie Heath from the Smithsonian talking about how to take your collections and tell a story with them in a way that really brings the community into your museum. Nancy Ravenel from the Shelburne Museum talked about using technology and social networking for collections care activities. And Mike Frisch, who's an historian in Buffalo, brought along some of his colleagues who are saving collections in Buffalo in order to tell community history. It was just a wonderful panel, as were all of them. But that one was, was I thought, really great. And if you look at these, you'll find many amazing talks. And these forums have produced great connections of all sorts, between conservators and museums that are now ongoing connections, among people in a particular state. They just... I think they do the connect, have done the connecting work that they hoped that we would do. Almost 1,200 institutions have been represented at all of these, all the states, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, China, and Mexico. And we raised enough money to bring 450 of those people with travel stipends to the conferences. We wish we could have done more. But we also held at each of the forums a connections lab where people were able to talk face-to-face, one-on-one, with funders, with speakers, and, and create more connections. Out of the Buffalo, I just want to read you a couple of things, uh, specific out outcomes that took place at the Buffalo. One person wrote, I started to develop a museum Flickr profile for our behind-the-scenes collection care activities as soon as I returned home. And another one said, directly following the meeting, I obtained a donation 
to develop a brochure for public distribution on saving collections. We are also in the process of creating a small exhibition on conservation and preservation where we will show the CDC video. So again, this video is available to you for free, just off the website, for you to use with your board, with your community. And I think another thing that was amazing about the Buffalo meeting is that 44% of the people who came said they were going to apply for an American Heritage Preservation Grant. So, you know, it just shows that these components are building on each other. The bookshelf, Bob's going to talk about in more depth, but the reason we did the bookshelf was to provide smaller institutions with a compendium of resources that would help them with collections care. And many of the museums that have gotten them have been all volunteer institutions. We wanted it to be a permanent resource for people. It was curated by conservators nationwide, and then we brought a blue ribbon panel into Washington to help us narrow it down, and then we chose the final books and texts on it. We've had three rounds of online submissions. ASLH was our partner in this, and that's how Bob got his big promotion. Um, and they did an outstanding job. He and Terry Jackson have just been great. He and I argue as to how many sets have gone out, but I get the final word. We have 2,767 sets of this bookshelf that have gone out. Um, museums have received by far the largest share, 69%. Libraries, archives, and other have received 31%. And by far the largest percentage has gone to history museums and historic sites. Most of them have gone to individual institutions because that's what it was meant for, but we've given 15 sets to state libraries and 15 to state museum associations. We've gotten hundreds, hundreds of letters and emails about this, and I mean, some of them actually have made me cry. Uh, the delight at people getting them and the use that they're putting them to. But we're hoping that we can find ways, if you don't have the bookshelf, for you to have access in some way. And I will talk about that in a moment. These are some of the resources that are still available from Connections Collections. This Capitalize on Collections Care is a brochure that's available through Heritage Preservation. IMLS paid for it to be redone with case studies from smaller museums. At first, it was, and libraries, but at first it was on mainly, mainly on huge institutions, but it's all about how to use your collections as a way to bring funding to your institution and as a way to increase public outreach and interest in your institution. The user's guide for the bookshelf, that's gonna be my jumps in there. This is the user's guide. It is on PDF, again, on our website, so that you can go through and especially look at the questions in the back that give you ideas of where to go in the bookshelf to find the answers you need. The guide to online resources is also on our website. That is an amazing resource, providing you all of the online resources for collections care. And it grows because we just keep adding as things become available. The website itself is a, a wonderful resource. The video and the webcast I've already mentioned. Just see, um, I also want to mention so a couple of things that are tangential. In other words, they're not directly out of Connections Collections, but they relate to it. 
One is the STEPS program that ASLH is doing, which also was funded by IMLS, and Bob's going to be talking about that very, very briefly, because there's a standard on collection of care there. Another is preservation assistance grants at NEH. If you don't know about them, you should look at, the, at their website. And they have a new program at NEH, which I honestly believe grew out of Connect for Collections, and even they say it does. It's called Sustaining Cultural Heritage Collections Grants. They are brand new. They are for preventive conservation programs. And they are up to $40,000 for planning and evaluation and up to $400,000 for implementation. The first deadline is December 8th of this year. And other than that, of course, at IMLS, the Conservation Project Support category is always there. And the CAP program, the Conservation Assessment Program, to get you started in that area. Still to come, we are getting ready to put on a seminar at the I know you feel sorry for us, but at this castle in Salzburg, the Salzburg Global Seminar, it's called Connecting to the World's Collections, Making the Case for Conservation and Preservation of Our Cultural Heritage. It's going to be the end of October. It's invitation only. Right now we have people coming from over 25 countries, many of them from developing nations. People are coming from the head of the... Pakistan National, National Museum, for example, head of foundation in Argentina, people from Kenya and Mali and just all over the world. We are going to be focusing on things like indigenous communities, access and rejuvenation, education and training, and these looking at the whole issue worldwide and hoping we will come out with a report that I hope will be useful to the field. We also are putting together a book, I call it, on the initiative itself, which will go to Congress and the White House, the American people, and to museums and libraries to talk about connected collections and what we've done. Government agencies do have to report on how they spend the taxpayers' money, and that's a good thing. We also are planning a series of sustainability workshops. I'm shorthand for it, but they are for institutions already involved in connecting collections to help them sustain the progress they've made through whatever part of it they've um, been involved in. They will start probably in January, and one of them will be a webinar that will be widely available, obviously. And we're working on translations of portions of the bookshelf, primarily into Spanish, but other countries as well. So, get connected. Now, Benjamin Franklin did this in 1776 to tell all the colonies to come together. I don't think that maybe you're going to die if you don't join Connecting Collections, but we certainly do um, hope that you will become involved in some way, and these are some of the ways that you can. The new state outlines that I just mentioned are available at this website, and they will show you who in your state, what institutions in your state are engaged already in Connecting Collections. They will tell you about the statewide planning grant, and if there is a, um, a website for that, it will be on that list so that you can go straight to that and learn. You should be knowing about them, but if you don't uh, and aren't involved in them, you'll be able to find them from this, this sheet. It also will show you everybody who's received the bookshelf and everybody who's had an American Heritage Preservation Grant and everybody who's been to a forum. We're finding with the bookshelf that 
in some instances that we know of, someone's organized a book group around the bookshelf. And all of the institutions in a town meet once a month. They borrow the books. They move them around. They use whatever book they need uh, or whatever text they need. Uh, if you don't have the bookshelf, but you have a problem with a an item in your collection, go online, look at the user's guide, look at the back, see which text you need, see who's nearby who has the bookshelf, and call them up and ask them if you can borrow it. I mean, it is to be a permanent resource at that institution, but we also want them to be shared. Um, and the State Museum Association in your state may have it. Also, uh, if an implementation grant is being started from your state, then of course you want to be in on the ground floor for that. Finally, these are our partners, and we are really proud to have had the major national um, foundations like Press and Getty and Luce behind us, Mellon, many also local foundations, and many of these foundations have helped us bring people to the conferences, helped for the, for the forums that come in. So in conclusion, I'll just have to say that it, it will be years before we know the results of this initiative, which makes it kind of hard to write the report now. We have to write it based on what's happened thus far. Because initiatives take a long time to really filter in, to, to make the flowers bloom everywhere. But we still believe that there have already been just amazing connections made and that exactly the kinds of institutions that Connecting to Collections was designed for, that is the smaller, small to mid-sized museums and libraries and archives, are the ones who are benefiting from it. And we at IMLS see this initiative both as breaking new ground and building on the good work that's already been done. And we're pleased to see that the various components are intersecting in a way and building on one another to create new connections. So again, I hope to hear your ideas about things IMLS can continue to do at the end of this session. In the meantime, please give your attention to our speakers. And Scott is going to start. I'm going to have them just reintroduce themselves very quickly. Thank you very much. My name is Scott Carley. I work at the Alaska State Museum, uh, and I'm going to do something a little unorthodox here. Uh, <laughs> not an interpretive dance. What I would like to do is, while I'm uh, sort of int introducing myself, I would like to um, just have some slides going in the background of um, what my life was like last week. Uh, there was a major flood in the uh, State Archives of Alaska, and uh, I had a different plan for this week. My plan for that week was to host a conservation conference in Juneau of the Western Association of Art Conservation. Uh, instead, um, I did a lot of disaster mitigation. The reason why I'm showing this now is because what's interesting, and what I'll get to later on, is that um, we actually, the, uh, the previous month, had held um, a, work, a series of workshops in Alaska that were um, connected with uh, the project that uh, Nancy was talking about, um, connecting to collections. It was paid for uh, in part with the uh, with our statewide planning grant, uh, and it was just almost ironic that we had been talking about flooding in archives and then um, a major archive hit in the place um, that actually is is uh, coordinating our our statewide planning grant. So, 
Uh, I'll just let these run in the background. There's there's plenty of them, um, so uh, you'll you'll see a lot of, of disaster uh, images. But uh, when I first heard about connecting to collections, I thought um, this is really a fantastic thing. My background is as a conservator. I, I did my training at the Buffalo Conservation Program and uh, thousands of type collecting entities. So we're maybe at 10%. But the, the good news is we have uh, fingers that reach out into almost every community in Alaska. And in order to do this, we really needed to hire somebody to um, to be the point person on this. And that's uh, primarily what we did with our statewide planning grant. So we hired a coordinator. Um, and she has been um, really key in uh, finding people in every community and getting them to uh, to volunteer to be archive rescue corps. Uh, what what we're also noticing is that um, that once we identify these people, that we ask them, well, what do you need or what do you want? A lot of them want training uh, and information, so um, that's what we're uh, providing. And this year, we were very fortunate to be able to take some of the money that uh, we had for our, our grant and use it towards um, some training sessions that we hadn't really planned on doing, but we uh, we were fortunate enough to have a, a photo conservation intern come and work with us this summer, and we thought, wow, you know, we don't get there are no photo conservation uh, professionals in Alaska. There's no paper conservator in Alaska. Um, there's there's actually only three conservators in all of Alaska, and we all do objects conservation. So whenever a paper conservator wanders by, we latch onto them uh, and and we send them around the state to do all kinds of stuff. And I've done this on a couple of occasions. So when this photo conservation intern shows up, we're like, okay, we're sending you around the state to do training. Uh, so that's what we did. And uh, I'd like to show you a few slides of, of that training. Um, we decided to hold workshops in the major uh, municipalities in, in Alaska. So we held them in uh, Juneau, Anchorage, and Fairbanks. These workshops were free. so. There was no fee involved, um, but we weren't able to pay for travel. Um, and uh, this is our art coordinator, um, Frances Field, uh, and she's just done a terrific job. She's done such a great job that um, they've decided to uh, make her job part-time in the archives itself beyond the grant because we were, uh, we were in the first round of, of granting for the statewide planning grants, uh, and that funding has now run out. But we've kept her on because the state recognizes the importance of this program, and we want to keep her on in order to apply for the um, implementation grant. And you can see we show um, Connecting to Collections uh, website and all the wonderful things that you can do on there. Um, this is the uh, photo conservator, Jenner, Jennifer McGlinchey, um, and she did just a wonderful job, a very, actually very high level uh, information, providing information on um, the history of photography, the history of all the different forms of photography, which, as you all know, in the digital age, um, the, what they're calling, I guess, classic wet photography or something is, is completely dropping out, and a lot of people don't even recognize um, the right types of prints anymore. So is it, you know, is it a collodion print, or is it a, a gelatin silver print? Uh, so she brought all this information to that, um, and here it is. She's talking about um, on this slide tintypes and you know, what is the difference between a tintype and a daguerreotype, those sorts of things, so that people can recognize them in their own collections. Um, 
And then we did um, a lot of practicums where we passed around uh, archival type uh, photos and different types of materials and uh, let the, the audience kind of talk about what they would do with those and how they would protect them. Um, she showed, um, this is a, a glass plate negative that has a very typical damage of where the um, collodion is um, separating from the glass. Um, so allowing them to recognize the different types of damage and what they might be able to do about them. We also passed out um, little examples or samples of archival materials so that they would know what, uh, what is best to use with their photo collections uh, and general archives. Um, and uh, we had participants from all types of organizations from uh, small historical societies to museums to entities that I spoke of earlier. We had this group show up who was um, from a theater group. And um, now I think that they do, they do recognize themselves as an archive of this theater, the Juno Douglas Little Theater, which has been in Juno since the 1950s, um, and has a wonderful collection of uh, material that uh, is part of the history of Juno and needs to be preserved. Um, it was very, we tried to make it as hands-on as possible uh, and as varied, so we, we did hand around a lot of materials for people to look at. Um, and uh, we also talked about um, tape, self-adhesive tape, uh, and why not to use it ever for anything. Um, it, if you just almost say the word tape to Jennifer, she starts to get a tick. Um, because there's, there's a lot of tapes out there that, um, that say, you know, archival quality or acid-free or used for mending documents. But um, as she pointed out time and time again, it's, it's really not... Um, something that you want to use. There are, there are better alternatives for consistent technical material. Anyway, um, just some more examples of uh, workshop participants. Um, and that here I am showing um, a, a couple of um, quick tests that you can do to find out whether material is safe to be um, used for housing for archival collections. Um, pH tests or um, type of burn tests to test plastic and those sorts of things. So we try to make it as hands-on and as interesting for the participants as possible. Um, we also talked a lot about the, uh, the, in the dangers to the collection, the hazards to your collection. And this um, poster um, shows uh, how light can damage a collection. This portion of the poster is trying to show them that um, there are hazards to your collection and you have to be aware of them. Um, the, one of the best things that came out of the, uh, the workshops was that the participants themselves started teaching themselves. And I've noticed this is very true of, of adult learning, um, that once the conversation gets going, there's a lot of information that the participants actually have, and they shared it. Um, and this is um, Amy Steffian, who's the deputy director of the Lutic Museum. And she's just a brilliant um, woman and, and just could almost hold a, a seminar herself on, on small museums. So that's uh, my, uh, my slideshow there. And um, the uh, other thing I'd like to mention is that uh, you know, we do have particular challenges in Alaska. Uh, we have to overcome distance uh, for a lot of participants. And it's very expensive to uh, move around the state. There aren't a lot of roads. So you can't just say, we're going to hold this workshop. Uh, in 
Fairbanks One Trail drive down, you know, because, well, there's only really one road. So if you're on the road, you're lucky. If you're not on the road, you're kind of screwed. So um, we uh, we are going to apply for a um, statewide uh, implementation grant. And um, part of this money will be used to uh, hold more training uh, that uh, we can invite more, uh, more even a more diverse crowd of people who can't self-fund to, uh, to get to it. We'd like to really reach out to a lot of what we call bush communities. These are communities that are off the road system um, that where you have to fly into them. There's a there's several museums um, that are really out in the middle of nowhere. I was just at one last month, uh, Anaktubic Pass, which is up on the Brooks Range. They have a small museum in a town of about 500 uh, primarily native Alaskans up there, Inupiat. Uh, and um, for them, just for me to fly from Fairbanks, so I, I was already in Fairbanks flying from Fairbanks to um, Anaktubic Pass cost $500 round trip. So for them, it's very expensive to, to come to a training. So we're going to use part of the uh, money if we get this grant to bring in some more participants from these outer lying communities. We'd also like to use um, part of the statewide implementation grant to um, fund internships uh, to go out to these communities, archive uh, students, students from archival programs or conservation programs or even um, museum studies programs to go out and, and be in these communities for uh, a few months at a time to help out and actually do things. I mean, actually get something done. Because I think you can only get so far with training. There's uh, there's people who come to the training, they need to know this information, but a lot of times they're too busy to implement it. So we want to really turn it into almost a Peace Corps for archives, where we're going to send young, happy, um, idealistic, uh, <laughs> Exactly, the whole nine yards. Just send them out into the bush and have them work in these communities. So where, whereas it started off as thinking that the core, the body, would be from these communities themselves, what we're realizing is um, that we really need to have uh, a, a, a different kind of core, almost like a peace core, but an archives rescue core, go out into these communities and show them how to take care of their archives and have it be specifically directed. So um, that's just what I wanted to share with you today uh, about what we're doing in Alaska and how it pertains to connecting to collections. So, um, I really hope that you do get involved in your state um, in connecting to collections because um, I believe that it is really a great initiative and it um, will have a long and lasting impact on um, the care of collections. Um, I'm Steve Cox uh, from the Indiana Historical Society, and just to um, reference back to Scott, um, two things. Um, what is it about archives and floods? I mean, they sort of attract each other. And, and it, in, in Indiana, uh, we had some the archive. The Indiana State Archives is located uh, in the basement of the State Library. And how many are from Indiana? Well, you moved, so. Um, and and so it was centrally located, the State Library, the Historical Society, and um, the archives were all in one building at one time. And then 
we outgrew it. Indian Historical Society built new buildings. There's also some water damage in the archives here in the basement, um, and it's through leaky pipes. You know, it's it's so. What happened was they uh, moved out 30 blocks from downtown in a big warehouse. And you can still access them. You, I mean, they've got them all arranged, right? You can do, do your research. So the archive staff is very professional, and they've got it fixed up. But it's still 30 blocks away. And now they have to go through the process, the state legislature, to get a new building built back downtown. And I don't need to tell you that that's going to take lots of time. And uh, they're just now surveying land that they think that they want to um, build this this archive. Um, at one time, I worked at the New Hampshire Historical Society, and um, I was a manuscript curator there. And I was asked to serve as not on the board of advisors for the Northeast Document Conservation Center. And they tell a story there, Scott, talk, speaking of tape, uh, that when Scotch tape was first developed, some people got the bright idea to tape documents, one strip at a time, all the way down, look, look be like Mylar-like. You know, we're going to preserve this forever. <laughs> I mean, um, and they tell that story because some people think they are helping when, in fact, they're not helping. So, anyway, I just thank you for jogging my memory. Well, I have a, a conservationist, certainly does. And, I, and um, I'd like to introduce uh, Jeff Harris and Jeanette Rooney. Um, right, right there, the local history services department, two-thirds of them. And um, they, basically, I walk around with a clipboard. These guys actually do the fun stuff. And they and they did they did the report, and I hope you all got a copy of it. That is a, uh, a report that we used our grant money to to survey the state. And it is, uh, it's, it's full of graphs, which is what I have up here. Just to give a, uh, it's a very interesting, um, snapshot of the state, um, and um, Jeff is here to answer the real tough questions. Um, softballs come to me, down the plate. Um, um, but anyway, we have uh, um, the Hoosier Heritage Alliance. It's a, uh, a group of uh, individuals that were, our, um, that were our partners in this. They are, I, I should have made a slide, but I didn't. Um, the uh, Association of Indiana Museums, Connor Prairie, uh, Idle George Museum of American Indians and Western Art, Historic Landmarks Foundation of Indiana, Indiana Co Cooperative Library Services Authority, the Historical Society, Indiana State Library, Indiana State Museum, Indianapolis Museum of Art, and Minnetrista uh, in um, Muncie, Indiana. And together, representatives met several times to uh, look at the survey and to uh, craft questions, to tweak it, to, to edit the questions. And um, um, in, in, in addition, Jeff and, and uh, Annette and uh, Stacy Quangler, the other person, held uh, about five or six 
regional informational sessions uh, throughout the state for those who were interested. We sent out a little over a thousand questionnaires and we received about 27, 270 back. And that's about 27, 28% uh, in each of them. So uh, we were hoping for a third. Uh, and we can get into why and some people knew knew about this and chose not to do it. And we can get into those reasons. We have our suspicions. Some people actually um, told us why they didn't choose to do it. Um, but um, okay. we're looking at, I just pulled a couple of these graphs out. And, and you can uh, look at the report. And as I mentioned, if you get it on Indiana Historical Society's web page, uh, it, it's really a, if, if you, uh, we put everything on there. If you did a hard copy of it, it'd be about 75 to 80 pages. So graph after graph. It, it, you can, we, we sliced and diced the data any number of ways. Um, how collection records are kept. And if you look at this pie chart, um, you think we're in the computer age. Well, not for all of us. 23% are. Um, and a combination of paper and, and uh, uh, computerized. Some don't know. Some work at some work at places and they don't know how their records are kept. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we can go into into reasons why uh, they don't know. Um, uh, who is responsible for conservation and preservation? General staff, unpaid staff, volunteers. Um, very simple graph, but also very revealing. My question is, who's training? Who's training both of them? Who's training both groups? Now, the good news is that all the, the, the institutions I read are partners. Um, the Indiana Historical Society, the State Library, the Art Museum, um, I'm not sure, and I think the State Museum have some kind of conservation arm. They've got people on staff who can help uh, with uh, the local history museums and libraries who have uh, archival collections with this. Um, and so what we want to do is, is make that connection for the next grant, and if we're going to apply for another grant, thank you. Um, no, <laughs> Christine, sorry. <laughs> um, so it, it's uh, that was the first question that, that popped out. Who is really who is really training these folks? Um, they know they have a need or an urgent need for uh, the things listed at the bottom, from finding aids to assessment, staff training, treatment, and dealing with digital collections. So there is some recognition here uh, among, among some of these institutions that they know that they need certain amounts of, uh, of help. And I mean, we've got great uh, quotes, um, one from a, a museum and you can just hear the desperation here. We need acid-free boxes to store artifacts and textiles. I have spent the last year begging 
for money to get our collection out of corrugated cardboard straw bags. So you've got just someone who knows, a professional staffer who knows what's the right thing, dealing with maybe a board that's not interested or has, for whatever reason. Budgeted funds. Um, no specific budget line for funds available. This is for uh, budgeted funds for conservation and recreation. Uh, they don't have a budget line, but they think they can scrape together the money to take care of what they need to take care of. Um, they only 12% has a budget line. Don't know 8%. Uh, here in this, I think, I think Scott, you mentioned, or, or I'm sorry, Nancy, you just kind of goes back to what we were talking about. No budgeted funds for that sort of thing. 58%. I mean, that that's, strikes me as being particularly large. Yet, no budgeted funds in their mission statement. Um, preservation of the collections are mentioned in archives, library, all the way down. Genealogy, Jewish Historical Society, Museums, Preservation Society. So it's mentioned in their in their mission, but there's no money funding attached to that. Um, this is just broken out. Funds budget for conservation preservation. Uh, no budgeted funds. Preservation society and genealogy society um, lead the way in that. Um, uh, archives and libraries seem to be, um, I mean, they're doing the best they can with that. Um, again, who's responsible? Again, this is broken down for conservation preservation. General staff, unpaid staff. State broken out by type of institution. Um, where is that going to? I, I tried to leave the, the real busy ones off, but this is just focus on the left hand side of this graph. Percent of collections with condition reports zero. Um, that strikes me as being particularly large. In other words, they don't know the condition of their collection. Or if they do, they, they, it, it, it's, it, uh, it's incidental to other things in their life. It's uh, something that they might know up here, uh, but they don't. There, there's nothing in writing uh, in any of their uh, materials. The percent of collection catalog online, again, Focus on the left-hand side of this. Uh, zero, so zero. Well, the two zeros mean um, uh, and recommendations. Just three big ones. Awareness. Basically, we want to make the people that we're dealing with aware of the issues of, of taking care of collections regardless of what that collection may be. They need to be aware that they, they have a responsibility. And I think the number one thing we tell them is, you know, folks, we're just passing through. We have an obligation to, to 
for, for generations to, to come after us. And we are the caretakers. If you're a caretaker, that you need to take that role very seriously. And that means you have to be trained. And um, we're going to look at different ways of, of, of um, hooking these folks up with, with the training that they need. And, and it's not like there's some of them don't care. That's true. But I think the vast majority of people uh, that, that Jeff and others have dealt with um, want to be trained. They, they, they really do. It's, it's not like they're evil or anything, but, I mean, they just don't have the resources. Get down to the big one. Uh oh, funding. <laughs> if you're going to say it's in your mission statement that you're going to care for these collections, then you, put, you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to back it up with with um, funds. And um, we want to look at ways of doing that in our in our next round of of, of grants. Um, overall, um, uh, I just please uh, take take one of those home with you the, the report. And just take a look at that. I think I want to say that it's it's fairly it's based in other places I've worked uh, in other states and states I'm familiar with. I think it's I think this is pretty much in line with everyone else. I don't know. I, it's just you have smaller museums without a lot of money. You have you have these places that are run by volunteers and they're doing the best they can. They they pay the um, excuse me they um, Take money out of their own pocket to pay for some of these things. So um, I think uh, the good news is <coughs> Jeff and his in, in this state local history services and uh, what other institutions offer as well. We have uh, they they are what they do is they, they are the umbilical cord to us or to the local, to Indiana Historical Society. They give workshops. I mean, a cemetery is a collection. It's a collection of headstones. They've given cemetery workshops on how to preserve those. We have the uh, conservation staff, which is really a luxury for a state historical society. We've got a conservation staff of uh, about four people and um, with different expertise. They will give workshops as well. So um, the state library has, has people on staff to help libraries um, deal with their particular Conservation needs. So that's uh, basically in a nutshell. I'm sorry it was it was um, kind of quick, but as I say, feel free to uh, take the report and feel free to get online to access other um, graphs. So the pressure's on to follow up with all that information with something decent good from our side of the house. Hi, I'm Bob Beattie. I'm with ASLH. And believe it or not, for those of you who know me or don't know me, this is the very first time I have presented at an ASLH conference. So thank you, Nancy, for the opportunity. I, I, I managed to skip this my first two years at ASLH because I, I had so much going on. Not that I don't now, but um, we've been so engaged in this project. When Nancy asked if, if uh, I would come and, and be a part of it, my first thought was, can Terry do it? Terry Jackson has been, I'm teasing, but she was our court, she has been our staff coordinator of this, really has done the lion's share of the work, and is off uh, coordinating our very first inaugural online conference, which kicks off here in about 45 minutes nationwide. And Scott, you'll be pleased to know we put it at 1030 to sort of accommodate Alaska, but it was more 
because of California. We care about Alaska, but it was really hard to push it later with everybody's schedule. So um, anyway, and Marilyn, I don't know if you had flashbacks when you saw the Star Spangled Banner images going there, but but um, if anybody doesn't know Marilyn Zoidis, who's here from Kentucky Historical Society, you were the chief conservator on that project, the curator, I'm sorry, on the uh, Star Spangled Banner project. So if y'all have not seen the finishing touches of that work, because um, I think it was either in the video or one of the early slides. That flag used to be hanging vertically in the Smithsonian. They have now got it at an angle um, in the dawn's early light. I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal. So I, I thought about you as I saw that, doing that. And, and I just want to say thanks to Steve, who's a very good friend, Scott and Nancy, who are all actually very good friends uh, for, the, for the information. I've been to a lot of the places that Scott talked about in Alaska, not the places he talked about, but some of these various institutions um, in the interior. Scott helped me set up a wonderful itinerary. And, um, you know, I, I go with what, with what Steve said. All volunteer organizations and smaller ones, the, the ones that we all know and love and work with, ASLH does a lot of that, they want to do the best job possible. We just need to help them and kind of tell them what that is. No one really wants to do a bad job caring for their collection or presenting education or, or whatever that might be. And then Nancy, thank you, my partner in crime, or I am her partner in crime, I guess her, Robin, on this whole initiative. Um, this has been a wonderful uh, initiative for me to get started as a, as a staff person and, and really kind of by coming out on the national uh, job at ASLH. But we have, we have coordinated this program for IMLS. Nancy's the driving force. She's kind of directed, directed where we need to go. Um, and we've kind of followed the lead there. What I want to do is get into just some, you know, some details about what, what we know now about the bookshelf, which is the initiative that ASLH has coordinated. We came in, um, well, heck, I was probably at, at ASLH about a month. I mean, I didn't even know what the heck was going on at my job, and, and the proposal came out to be a cooperative partner with IMLS on this bookshelf project. My background, as I will always say, is, is education collections are a small piece of what I know as you know, kind of general knowledge of, of the way that, that we work. Uh, in conservation, in fact, at that point, I thought conservators and curators were one and the same. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't really get the differences of those sorts of things. We had actually gone out and researched a bunch of uh, books and opportunities to say, MLS, this is what we think. Um, I'm not sure where that went, but I know that there was already an expert panel who chose the text that went in that. Uh, I don't have those titles with me, but there's about 20, there's about 15 in what we call the core set, meaning everybody gets this, got this set of books. Then there is a, a about five to six, I think six that are we call the non-living, which deal with um, objects and papers and stuff. Yeah, thank you. Everybody knows what that means. And then the living set, which literally means uh, horticulture and fish and animals and those sorts of things. Uh, that was, um, as I understand it, Dr. Radice's uh, desire to do the two different sets, one for the living collections and one for the non-living. What we found, particularly in the first two rounds, is that even the zoos and aquaria and, and, and botanical gardens wanted the core set because they themselves had a bunch of archival collections or documents and or even objects. They were operating, if they weren't operating a, an institution or a museum, they had those things, which was, a I don't know, a little bit of a surprise to us when you see a zoo come across and they just want the core set and we're thinking, well, don't you want this living set? Um, my guess is that the only thing we can determine is they probably felt like they understood conservation of their living collection and, and, and felt they didn't as well with their others. 
Um, the bookshelf itself, um, I think we say $850 is what its, its, its actual retail value is, as they say on the prices, right? Uh, it is a phenomenal set of resources. To date, I think my 2500 number might have been, it's over 2500 but Nancy's saying 27 but I think I took out the living collections or I just went with the history institutions, I forget which. The goal was to get them mostly to small and mid-sized institutions. I think the argument when we started this was that there was enough money out there for the large institutions to purchase these books themselves. I certainly felt that way, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, and we did, toward the beginning, really try to make sure that we, we, we skewed it toward those who, who the $850 on owning this set was a, was a really great gift to them. You can see the numbers. Um, we have identified ASLH had that under 250000 is a small museum. That's what the Small Museums Committee researched and did. Uh, they also say if you think you're small, you're small. So we have some what we would qualify as medium budget-wise to identify themselves there. There, as you can see, 24% have what we would call medium-sized museums, and 21% are large museums. The other thing is, and this is pr probably no surprise given the sheer number of institutions in this country that are history-based, a little over 50% are, are history museums, historic houses, uh, uh, his historic sites, those sorts of things. Uh, that is not a surprise, and, and frankly, it's also um, where where we come from, ASLH, but we we went way out there to try to get as many different types of institutions as possible to apply. We just didn't just uh, promote or market to the ASLH stuff uh, community. I don't know if y'all can. Uh, this this just gives a little breakdown. Uh, these are the awards, and this is, I believe these are all, no, these are the first two rounds of awards. We did just do the third round as well. But as you can see, it's pretty evenly distributed with the exception of New England. Um, and I'll read them out, but the Midwest is at 21%, Southeast is at 18 the West, which does include Alaska. You guys might be skewing this incredibly, but 18%. Why I have the Midwest again there at 17%, I don't know. Um, what region am I missing? There's six on there. That would be Mid-Atlantic at 17%. Thank you. That's a typo. Mountain Plains at 16 And then you notice New England, which is one of the more la larger population centers, is down to 8%. We've not dug deeper yet to figure out what, what, is, what had gone on there, um, unless they felt they, they were you know, covered in that area, which you know, they might be with the, with the, with the sets or info. We averaged uh, per state about 49 awards. Uh, for the 50 states, we, you know, of course, in Washington, D.C., so 50 states plus one, uh, ranged from a, a low of nine in Hawaii to 166 in California. We also got the word out to the United States territories, uh, and they did end up with some sets as well. Our highest numbers, excuse me, which is, which is no surprise, would be California, New York, Texas, uh, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Florida. Those are all in the 100 to 150 range. That's, you know, and those are, again, uh, the larger states with the larger populations able to do that. Now, what do we know about the collections that we know from the applications? 78% have American art or American material culture. This was a question Luce wanted, one of, one of the sponsors wanted there. Awardees reported, this is an incredible number to me, $1.7 billion 
objects, and I'm sure that also means ar archival stuff. We did not dig deeper to say, does that mean how many pieces of paper and those sorts of things? Um, still, it's, it's phenomenal. And if you look, these are the three that stood out. 91% books, manuscripts, maps, 85% photos, 79% historic objects. The question that, that immediately comes to mind for me is, what does this say uh, about what we think as either a field or as a culture about um, what represents or interprets our past or our present? And clearly, history is, 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 it predominates uh, within that and the, the types of things that we do. Now we have evaluation survey. The data I'm going to give you here is, is, is incomplete. We've done two rounds. I think the first round was nine months and the second round was, was it nine as well? Yeah, nine or ten. Um, frankly, like everything else here, and, and you know, um, I think Scott said it, said it really well, we're not going to know the true impact of the bookshelf or this initiative for a very long time. Uh, but unfortunately, because of the way the cycles work and the way the government works, and not and not even IMLS government, but those they have to report to, um, we've got to say something. I, I wish that, for example, we had another three years and we could come back and ask three years again what the impact was. Because we know we've made an impact with the bookshop. That's true. But it just won't be like some set initiative. But, I mean, the, 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 we're not going to see truly what comes of this for a while. So I will say this. Uh, we got about a 57% response rate. I've said this to Nancy a number of times on conference calls. I think that number is absolutely pathetic, uh, frankly, that you've gotten this free resource from, from the defunding agency for, for us and the federal funding agency, and nobody bothers to fill out the survey and tell them the responses. So uh, nothing really we could do about that. We hounded them about as best we could, um, short of going to their houses, and that costs a lot of money to travel, as Scott was talking about. We know the bookshelf is getting use. Um, you know, what is that? I'm not, I'm not a math person, but that's 76. 93% are using it on some sort of regular basis. Very small percentage regularly. 36% though are using it monthly. So that, I mean, that's a, those are pretty good numbers because, you know, we're not talking about the C. Dick and Jane books. I mean, these are these books have a lot of info. I encourage you if you don't have it, the Bookshelf User's Guide, which is online, download a copy and put it somewhere near your desk. Make sure your staff has it just for the frequently asked questions. Heritage Preservation did a phenomenal job, and I have to give Nancy kudos because that was not part of the original program. And Nancy said, I really think we need a user's guide. And so it, it spells out the books, the content, as well as, okay, you have a question about X, go to this chapter in this book. And we think that's a great aid, particularly, again, for smaller organizations, because even if they don't own the bookshelf, they can always get a book by interlibrary loan. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the genius of, of the way things go. We evaluated this based on the, on the four Heritage Health Index uh, recommendations. One was safer conditions for collections. Uh, institutions must provide. Uh, institutions must develop or update the emergency plans. Assign responsibility for caring for collections, meaning, I don't know, um, Steve, you said there was, uh, I did the math, I'm, I'm a history person, so I might have missed it, but it looked like between the paid and unpaid staff that y'all did was about 80-something percent. So that means there's a 20 percent that is, uh, you know, unassigned. Uh, and that's something that, that Heritage Preservation pointed out. Uh, and then share the importance of collections, one, by, by, uh, by sponsoring and funding, providing support for that. And what we've done is to try to look at these four recommendations and see what impact the bookshelf has had. 
and this is a little difficult because um, because of the fact that we're only 10 months into people receiving a really robust collection of things. Now, but what, but what we have found out, and again, uh, you know, we have to take this 57% of the people at their word that they're not reporting back that things are happening that aren't. So I'm, I'm going with this as gospel. There's no other way to, to determine. 62% have used the bookshelf or referenced it to find a way to provide safer collections. 62% have developed or updated their emergency plans. Um, and by the way, we've double-checked those numbers. That Those are right. Um, it looks like it's the exact same, but they, they've done that. 10% have assigned staff for collections care, but 80% already had assigned staff for collections care, staff or volunteers, as the one or the other, which which is good. So we're up now to uh, 89% um, of the bookshelf owners. I feel like I, we feel like it has had an impact. 51% in some way have used the bookshelf to share the importance of collections, provide support, raise funds. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting stat. Did collections care improve at an institution? I, overwhelmingly, um, they uh, respondents reported yes. Notice that, that before receiving the bookshelf, they ranked um, the quality of their institution's collections care at low, 32% those who applied. Ten months later with the bookshelf, they ranked it to 5%. Again, self-reporting, you know, maybe there's maybe there's some, some uh, fudge factor there is the only thing, but still, it's ha it is having an impact. Um, they ranked, 25% ranked the quality of their collections care at high at application time. 67% now rank it as high. Could be they figured out what the what the standards are and 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 have said wow we meet those and I'm really proud of that I, I have you know become educated and learned seventy six percent literally um, improved their uh, physical conditions a little over six in ten educated their board and staff and they also and and by the way educating includes the the question we asked was informed staff or board of ideal condi conditions for our collection light humidity storage, raise staff and board awareness of the education plan. I'm sorry, emergency plan. And if you notice, uh, look at look at the impact it's had on the institutional planning. 8% um, have created a long-term plan and 32% have improved it. 28% uh, created new policies and 74% improved existing policies. Notice, by the way, that's 102% um, if my math is right. That means some have both created and improved that, that, that number has a little bit of uh, overlap there. I think this is good. This is uh, emergency plan was one of the big things Heritage Health Index has pointed out. I'm assuming, Scott, those disaster pictures that you pointed up there because you guys were so well prepared. Um, you know, you guys were able to ameliorate a, a bad situation quickly. Notice again, uh, people realize, wow, I actually need to update my, my emergency plan. Uh, or some actually developed it. 37% assigned staff to deal with the emergency plan, not just deal with the collections and a small 6% conducted an emergency drill. 51% have planned some sort of capital project to address the condition of their collections. You know, when 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 museums were started, the object was sacrosanct. It was it was the, the thing. And we've, we've moved into the object uh, is not an untouchable thing. I mean, you, you still don't touch and do this, but it doesn't sit in a case or doesn't stay put away. It becomes a central to what, what we do. And, and we go back to it, but you know what? If it deteriorates or it's gone, 
Steve was talking about, we, we lose that resource altogether. So we, it is, I swear, I think about local foundations where I used to work and I'm like, man, if we, if we had just focused on that sort of stuff and little bits of money that make a big difference with significant items or objects or collection, it, it, it's, a, it's an easy sell. It's almost, it's almost as easy as kids. Uh, because it's such a visible thing, and it's a permanent resource, meaning that's not the right kids, sorry, getting money to do things for kids at an institution. 60% raised funds for the preservation of collection. And if you remember, I don't remember what that number was in the Heritage Health Index, but it was abysmal. And we know in, in with Steve's data, which I think what he said is right, we could probably apply that across the board, that um, um, you know, not enough institutions have even money in their budget for that. Recipients found the resource, I mean, 50% find it very useful and 40% useful. Uh, so, you know, I'll go with the 90% the there, other than the less than two who found it of limited use. I, I, you know, the only thing I can imagine is they haven't opened this yet, yet frankly. The, 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 the user's guide alone uh, was, was, was worth our time and effort as we did. Now, no store, no, nothing like this is, is uh, I mean, that was a bunch of boring statistics, but the stories, I think, will will ring true with many of you. These are some of the things. We, we had the open-ended, the bane of any evaluator's life is the open-ended question. Tell us some stories. I love, I, I bolded the things. I don't accept artifacts that are not pertinent. I love the next line. I realize we cannot be a repository for other people's emotional attachments. Anybody who's a collections person in here is nodding their head saying, heck yeah. Um, rescue a family Bible from floodwaters again. I guess those are those are common this time of year. That's Indiana, by the way, Shelbyville, Indiana. Cedar Falls, uh, Iowa. I feel better about the care I give to our collection. I didn't change much of what I was doing, but I better understood the reason behind the methods I've been taught to use. This is a great one, and uh, you know, any of you guys uh, who are in institutions and have these kind of community advisory groups and. I have a whole presentation I do on this about that they have to have a real specific goal and something to do, but they've re-energized their collections care committee, focused on conservation and preservation, created a line item in the budget. There's one of the Heritage Health Index things. Upgrade environmental conditions. Having these resources has made a tremendous difference. My favorite one's coming, by the way. Nice little library of resource material. Very user-friendly. Covers virtually all our needs. Answers frequently asked questions. I love this, you know, comforting peace of mind as we end each day, knowing we're doing the right thing the right way. And I, I say that semi in jest, but but I think that's really that's really the gist of it. Hailstorm, not a flood, forty thousand square feet. Without the benefit of the bookshelf, we would not have reacted as quickly or as thoroughly. Uh, I think this is one where they actually uh, found a mall site where they could move the collection and make it temporarily available. Uh, the ar I think this is an archives thing, not on display. But they, they, they reacted very quickly as a result of having this. Folsom Historical Society, not the Folsom Prison Historical Society. Um, call to action speech for local community college students to volunteer. This is great. No one in my class knew that our town had an important museum. Really? Uh, an interpretive center. None of my fellow students signed up to volunteer. Professor exposed her son and friends to volunteering at the center as part of a high school community service outreach. So I guess what I'm saying there is using collections to draw to draw folks in. I, I make the argument all the time. I've coordinated, I was in charge of our volunteer program at my museum, and the number one thing people wanted to do when they volunteered was in the collections and the archives. People just love old stuff. This is my this is really my favorite one. I remember when we when we got this. 
this is actually not a comment on the evaluation, which they said, see the press release that we did. Uh, Tropical Storm Faye was coming coming through Florida. These, they were in Mandarin uh, Museum Historical Society near Jacksonville. Uh, they had a fairly limited disaster plan. They figured out what they needed. They went to the bookshelf. They figured out what they needed to do. Um, although the buildings had a bunch of damage, the collections didn't have the damage that they expected. They were able to remediate the problems very quickly. And again, we're, I'm a Floridian. I've lived there most of my whole life. And when hurricanes come, you're you know you're shoring up windows and you're taking care of home. And it, the collection is it's it's a tough thing to continue to say, wow, we got to work on this too, because you're also sandbagging the museum and making sure other things happen. Um, and you know that's amazing that they stopped and figured out what to do. And, and you know they were very forthcoming with the fact that without the bookshelf, they would not have been able to do that. The last one, uh, and again, I I had I put a bunch of these here, but. Uh, um, Long-range plan, retrofitting a storage room for digitization. Uh, I thought each of these stories kind of spoke to a different angle. And this is, again, the bookshelf was a tiny part of this entire initiative. I don't know what your entire funding was for this, but the bookshelf was, you know, a couple million dollars of the entire project and, and uh, wanted to share a little bit of the data that we had going into this. It's been, we have been at ASLH been very pleased to be a part of this. Uh, as you can see, 50% of the recipients were, were from the history niche, if you will, um, and we're glad for those who weren't to get the material to, to care for those things. So I've gone on a little longer, I guess, than I anticipated. I have to brag on one thing. The Standards and Excellence Program for History Organizations, another IMLX-funded program. Uh, brochures are back there, and this session ran concurrent to this, but you could be hearing a lot more about this. Collections is one of the six sections of the standards program, which is a self-study excellence program for history organizations. And uh, there will be lots of information up on the website uh, as soon as we finalize a couple things, but it's ready to go. So please grab that brochure. I knew I would have time for that, for the full five. So, but thank you.